Do you remember the question we asked last week? As we looked at chapters 11 and 12 of Nehemiah, we landed on this question of how are we supposed to take the motivation and the excitement of revival-type seasons of life and let that translate into faithful living. Right? We, we saw the people of God having this huge celebration, this huge parade, marching on top of the wall of God. And the question was, how do we get off the wall and obey and, and honor God with our lives? This week, as you guys study chapter 13, we saw the sad, sad truth that the people of God did not get that question down. They did not figure out how to translate from a big covenant-making, worship-giving season into normal life. They walked away from God in so many ways. There's so much compromise in chapter 13. This is a very sobering chapter and a sad way to end the book of Nehemiah. I'm going to read the first couple verses in chapter 13. On that day, they read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people. And it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God. For they did not meet the people of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. Yet our God turned the curse into a blessing. And as soon as the people heard the law, they separated from Israel and those of foreign descent. So at that point, maybe we're thinking, okay, so that, that's cool. It, that kind of sounds like obedience. And, and maybe we're... We're, we're proud of them, and we're nodding, thinking, yes, this is going to be good. Um, but now it's a little bit of like a time warp thing. So we jump now back to another scene, and Nehemiah explains. He says, now before this, Eliashib, the priest, who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God and who was related to Tobiah, prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offering, the frankincense, the vessels, and the tithes of grain, wine, and oil, which were given by commandment to the Levites, singers, and gatekeepers, and the contributions for the priests. Verse 6, While this was taking place, I was not in Jerusalem, for in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I went to the king. So what is happening here is that Nehemiah has returned to Persia. So he has now made another 1,000-mile trek back to the palace to his job as a cupbearer. Well, why did he do this? Recall that in chapter one, when he goes and makes the initial request of King Artaxerxes and his queen, they say, well, how long are you going to be gone? Essentially, tell us what to expect before we approve this request. And so he was given leave of absence for just an appointed amount of time, and he has now been called back to the palace. And so he has left. And what has happened in Nehemiah's absence is that there is compromise. So let's look at what kind of compromise we see in this chapter. The first thing we see here is that leadership has been compromised. So in Nehemiah's absence, his foe, Tobiah, has made his way not just into the city, but into the courts of God. Guys, this is the same Tobiah of chapters 2 through 6. This is the bad guy who ran around the sand ballot trying to deceive and discourage Nehemiah and the people of God, trying to oppose the work of God. How is it that he has made his way into the actual courts of God? Well, you guys read that Eliashib, who is likely the high priest, is the one who allowed him in. How did that happen? Well, you guys saw that Tobiah played the family card to Eliashib. We read that they were, they're related 
And by playing that family card, what he does is he grays the black and the white. He had to have changed his appearance in some way, right? Tobias somehow must have changed his appearance since we last saw him in his plot to kill Nehemiah. Because no longer does he look like an enemy in this scene, but he looks like a friend. The wolf has donned the sheep's clothing, and he looks just like an innocent family member. Well, Nehemiah overcame the ruse of Tobiah, of Sanballat, and of the other guys. He overcame it, but Elisha has not. So it's like Nehemiah left, and in that leaving, there was a breach in leadership. That's a word we've seen throughout the book. We saw the walls breaches closed, but there seems like there's a breach in the leadership, and Tobiah takes advantage of it. Leadership is compromised, and evil has infiltrated the house of God. Do you guys see why this is so sobering? This scene is so sad because it is the fault of the priest. Okay, the fault of the high priest. I mean, recall with me from previous studies, what is the role of the priest? Elisha's job description was to watch over the sanctuary of God. His job was to be a moral and a spiritual example to God's people. They were to remind people of who God was. So, So when you saw a priest, and specifically the high priest, you saw them, you thought of God. Even down to the outfits that they wore, the beautiful colors and, and the gold and even a, a, like a plaque on their head that said, holy to the Lord. So you would see Eliashib and you're supposed to think, oh, God is holy. God is majestic. He is set apart. Eliashib's job was to guard the house and guard the law of God. And he failed. He failed miserably. Does this sound familiar to you guys? Can you recall who the very first priests were within the very first sanctuary of God? The very first sanctuary of God was Eden, and Adam and Eve were the very first priests. Their job, their job description was to keep the garden, to subdue it, to have control over it, to keep order, and within that garden to bear God's image. They failed, didn't they? They failed to keep the garden of God and to guard that gate when they let Satan into that garden. The garden was infiltrated. And that snake's corruption was cloaked in friendly questions to Eve. You guys see where this is going? We too are priests now, right? On this side of the cross, we see that we are royal priests. Aaron's line now moves through us as the people of God. And we have this vast job description to bring people to God, to show the world who God is to remind people of his holiness and to watch over the house of God. So how can we keep from compromising like Elisha did? That's the question that we can ask for ourselves. What I see here is that we must pray for eyes to see evil for what it is. Right? 
That's how we can apply these first couple verses. Let's pray for eyes to see evil for what it is. Eliashib's eyes had become dull. They no longer saw the distinction between good and evil and right and wrong. What was cloaked as charity to a family member was actually evil. James 4.4 says that a friendship with the world is being an enemy toward God. So let's not be like Eliashib in this way, but let's be like Nehemiah. Because Nehemiah saw things for what they were. He sees right past the guise of the wolf. He understands what has happened in this situation. And what has happened is that a cancerous snake has snuck into the sanctuary of God. And it is absolutely intolerable and unacceptable. He understands Tobiah is not a mere family member, but he is evil. He sees what has happened, and that is that God's workers have allowed compromise, have allowed corruption, have allowed something vile to move into what was set apart and holy, right? When, if you read those texts closely, what we see is that this place that Tobiah had moved into was supposed to hold these consecrated items, these items that were there for the purpose of worship, right? These things were consecrated, set apart, and unique. They had been moved to the side to make room for Tobiah, to make room for what was evil, to make room for what has opposed the work of God. This is a dire way to compromise. I am so thankful to be at a church that is not compromising in this way. To be at a church with strong leadership, men and women who are willing to confront evil and hold tightly to God's word rather than be moved by the winds of culture. But we know that this isn't always the case anymore, right? We see so many churches full of compromise, churches with soft leadership, unwilling to confront evil and allowing deceiving wolves to move not just into the church, but even into the pulpit. Pulpits that preach health and wealth, pulpits who preach tolerance at the cost of compromise and enlightenment rather than godly wisdom. I'm thankful to be at a church that this is not true, yet I see my heart's reflection in Elijah's compromise. I see myself there. I know that I am guilty of the compromise that he is guilty of. Do I not so often allow what is evil to move into my heart? The very sanctuary, the very dwelling place of God, the space that is to be filled with the spirit of God. Do I not often gray what should stay distinctly black and white? And do I not coat in sugar what is poison? Ladies, this is so important for us to see. We must resolve that we will not offer hospitality in our hearts to what opposes God. Let's not move out what creates worship and accommodate what is evil. We must not offer hospitality to what opposes God in our hearts, in our souls, and in our minds. In what ways can we do that? In what ways do we, do we not see evil for what it is? And, and we have, for example, vanity that 
um, that cloaks itself in health and fitness. And I'm taking care of the temple of God in this way. And we don't call it what it is, that, that maybe we're absolutely obsessed with what we look like. And in doing so, we accommodate what actually is building our own kingdom, so what is opposing the kingdom of God. And we make room for it in our heart, and we think about it all the time. And we make room for it by moving out the things that actually allow us to worship God. Ladies, I need you and and other women in my life to confront the evil in my life. If we see Tobiah in each other's hearts and minds, we have to be brave enough to call each other out on it. I don't think that Tobiah was hiding secretly in the house of God. I think people knew he was there. He was, it seems like he was a big personality. He didn't go undetected. People knew he was there. And yet he remained until Nehemiah came back. We have to be committed to one another that we will lovingly confront the evil so that our hearts will make room for worship. So in Nehemiah's absence, we see that leadership was compromised. The next thing that, the next round of bad news for the morning is that church was compromised, right? Didn't we read that Nehemiah sees that the Levites aren't being taken care of, right? So the church has been neglected and people aren't prioritizing the sacrificial system that we studied last week. The Levites are not being cared for. People aren't tithing. And so what did they do? Well, they returned to the countryside. They returned to their farms so that they could make money and be provided for. The Levites are now off mission as the church is being compromised. Why is this a big deal or how did this happen? It's because as leadership goes, so the people go. Right? So the people see that the top leadership is compromised and that, that Elijah has become lax. And so they're going to become lax too. And now we have this vicious cycle. The house of God has been compromised. The people then are not going to do their part to support the house of God. And now the sacrificial system is all the more neglected. Why is this such a big deal? Well, as we have seen in previous weeks, is the sacrificial system was their way of being close to God. That was how they communed with God. That is what their relationship with him was built upon. And so now we're seeing, again, what was the point of building a wall if within that wall we can't have communion with God? Well, that rhetorical question we've asked weeks in and weeks out, unfortunately, is, is actually happening here in chapter 13. Poor Zerubbabel, right? Decades earlier, why did Zerubbabel come back? To rebuild the, the temple, the house of God. And now because of this compromise, we see his work has been neglected and it's in vain. How about a little bit more bad news? Next, what did we read? The Sabbath has been compromised. So it says that the people are working, they're making wine on the Sabbath. They are um, they're selling, they're buying and selling, they're making money on the Sabbath. This day that was supposed to be set apart for rest. So why is this such a big deal? 
we're not going to get into all the details of why actually the law of the Sabbath was important. But what I think we need to understand right now is that this is the law of God being compromised. So if you're feeling bad for Zerubbabel, now we feel bad for Ezra. Ezra was the man who came back to rebuild the people of God around the word of God. He was the man most knowledgeable in God's word as he was a priest. His mission has been neglected. His work seemingly in vain because now the law of God has been watered down. Nothing is set apart anymore in chapter 13. The house of God, the servants of God, and now the the day of God. It's all been compromised. Once again, I see my heart's reflection in this compromise. I know that I am guilty of the same. Because so often I am willing to compromise the law of God if it means that I get personal gain. Or if it means that I get to obtain wealth. Am I not guilty of seeing God's rules as like this buffet where I get to go up and see what looks good to me and pick what looks good and pass on what is unappealing? So what must we do so that we don't compromise in this way? One of my favorite psalms um, of King David is when he says, all your boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. You guys heard that psalm before. It's, It's beautiful. What David is saying, he's saying, God, your law, your boundary lines that you've given to me, they're for my good. And so I embrace them. See, the boundary of the Sabbath in particular invited God's people to take a break from work. And to remember that it was God who provided for them. So when I feel like I want to compromise, or when I see the temptation to compromise and water down the word of God, I pray to have a heart like David that says, okay, your boundary lines, your guardrails, they are good for me. And instead of uh, being bitter towards them or disdaining them, I am embracing them and asking for a heart that would love his boundary lines. And one more, one more bit of bad news. We see that the wall has been compromised. And with this, we notice that all three leaders have had their work neglected. Not just Zerubbabel, not just Ezra, but now Nehemiah himself, who came back to build the wall of God. His work has been in vain. In verse 16, we read that these foreigners are living in the city of God. Foreigners are coming and going. People who oppose the work of God. The people of God are accommodating those who dishonor the law and the ways of God. And in doing so, they're making this wall null. See, why build the wall then? I mean, why spend all this time and energy to build the wall of God if you're going to invite evil and temptation to walk right through the gates? What's the point? Recall from the very first weeks, what is the purpose of this wall? Well, one is that it was supposed to protect the people. We've talked about that at length. The wall was supposed to protect God's people from men who opposed God. It was to be this strong fortress, a protection from the harm of the world. But ladies, there's even more there, and we should not miss this. 
God's wall was speaking to God's people about their identity. Okay, God is saying to his people, you are my chosen people. You are holy. You are set apart. You are different. You are my possession. This wall is to remind you that there must be distinction between you and everyone else. What God has been saying to his people from the very beginning of time, ever since Egypt, he says, I draw you out that I might draw you near to myself. I draw you out of slavery. I draw you out of exile. I draw you out of sin that I might draw you near to me, near to my presence. This is the message of the Old Testament, the New Testament. This is the message of God's word to us today. He draws us out from what would kill and harm and destroy that we might be drawn near to him. And he says to his people from Adam and Eve to Abraham to the people working on the wall next to to Nehemiah, he says, you are my image bearers. Your job is to reflect and represent me. So people of God, your holiness tells the world of my holiness. Your purity tells the world that I am pure. Your generosity with one another tells the world that I am a generous God. That is why the wall was so important. That is why it is so sobering to see the wall of God be compromised. Because with it, we see that the people are not understanding their God-spoken identity, their purpose. So what do we do? What do we do to prevent this kind of compromise in our life? What do we do with this sad scene where the stench of compromise is just filling the city? We must guard the gates. Nehemiah says that he purified the people and told them to come and guard the gates. That is what we, too, are called to. We must guard the word of God. We have to take it so seriously to guard what is coming in and out of our lives, in and out of our minds, in and out of our homes, and in the lives of our children and our family. We must embrace these God-given boundaries rather than despise them or compromise them, and we must guard the gates. 2 Timothy 1.14 says, Guard the good treasure entrusted to you with the help of the Holy Spirit who dwells in you. This is our calling from Nehemiah. We must stand guard at the gates if we are to prevent the compromise of this text. That's a lot of bad news. <laughs> That's a lot. You think there's some good news in chapter 13? I hope so. I hope you see that. I hope that you lean forward in your seat knowing that there is gospel hope even in this last sobering chapter of Nehemiah. There is good news, and the good news is that Nehemiah returned. So he left, and he went back to his position at the palace for a period of time, but then he comes back, albeit with a bit of a temper. (laughs) And what does he do? He leads the people out and away from their compromise that would have been to their demise. We read that in a fury, 
he clears out all of Tobiah's possessions out of the house of God, making room for the consecrated items again. This is like this bad breakup scene and you hear like an Alanis Morissette song start in the background (laughs) and you see Nehemiah come and start throwing boxes and and stuff out of the window of the chambers of the house of God clearing out what is vile so that that place can once again be holy that is our good news is that Nehemiah confronts evil in this way but the news gets gooder when we, when we allow ourselves to picture hundreds of years later the much better Nehemiah coming into the temple of God, seeing that there is compromise everywhere, smelling the stench of watered-down obedience, seeing that the people are using the sacrificial system for their own profit, and he starts turning those tables He starts using a whip that the house of God might be pure, might be free of compromise. And there's more good news. Because in Nehemiah's return, he gets the Levites back on mission. He gets the house of God back in order. Our good news is to once again be reminded that God is jealous for his glory. And that God is a God of order. Nehemiah comes back and he brings that order back. What he does is he holds up the word of God once again. He leaves the palace. He comes to his people. He sets guard over the word and wall of God. What a roller coaster. So many ups and downs. So much bad news with little bits of good news. So much back and forth. How could this be? After all of these amazing prayers and covenants and celebrations and, and parades and these, these amazing days highlighting God's faithfulness, how is this? How did the people get themselves in this situation again? It's almost like they needed more than a stone wall. It's almost like the people of God needed more than a prophet or a priest or a king. It's almost like even their best intentions on their best days fell short. Yet this is where the curtain closes on the Old Testament. The people of God weakened by their compromise. The city of God in in ruin and in chaos, and in a mess. The mess that we started this study in is still here. This book closes in darkness, it seems. And there's this unanswered question. Will the city of God and will the people of God ever thrive? But here's what we know. We know that the God who spoke light into darkness in Genesis chapter 1 will fulfill his promise in chapter 13. We know that the God who spoke order into the chaos at creation will not abandon his covenant. 
we know that the God who made man out of dust and woman out of man will build for himself a people who will bear his image. Light will dawn for the people of God again. Because the book of Nehemiah is a canvas on which God has painted his faithfulness. We believe, we know, we hold to the truth that light will dawn for God's people again, against all odds, against all rebellion, against all compromise and all weakness. We know that it will dawn as the New Testament opens, as that curtain is drawn back, unveiling a baby born under the light of a Christmas star, a baby that would grow to be a man, a man and a God, a man who would say of himself, I am the light of the world. See, the bleakness of this closing scene in the Old Testament does not leave us hopeless because we know that there is one stronger than Nehemiah, much more pure than Eliashib, and far more righteous than anyone who stood in the line of David. This study ends with this beautiful invitation to consider Jesus Because just like Nehemiah, Jesus has gone back to his position next to God, right? Nehemiah returned to the right hand of the king just as Jesus has. Just as Nehemiah did in that last scene, Jesus too will come back in the closing scenes. And in what condition will he find his people When the much better Nehemiah returns from heaven, in what condition will he find us? May he find each one of us on the wall, under his word, and with a sturdy and steadfast faith in him. Ladies, may he find us not compromising, but doing a great work by the power of his Holy Spirit. This is our gospel message from Nehemiah. Dang it, try it again. Let's be done.